Welcome to the Garden to Plate podcast. I'm your host, Sonia, and I'm here each month exploring a new topic having to do with growing your own food and making an easy seasonal recipe from your own backyard with my co-host Erica. In our last episode, Erica and I were talking about our anxiety that COVID-19 would spread to the USA and to our hometown. COVID-19 has become a reality for everyone everywhere. It has changed all of our plans, the way we work and spend our time. I virtually sat down with my sister-in-law, Rebecca Bruck, a licensed clinical social worker and trained in classical culinary arts, to talk about mental health and how gardening can relieve the stress many of us are feeling. Um, well, so you're my sister-in-law, and I'm hoping that you can just introduce yourself and your, I guess, official title and what you do on a day-to-day basis normally um, in terms of therapy and counseling. Okay. So I launched uh, a private practice in my community uh, called uh, Colin- The Creative Culinary Therapist. And what I do is I bridge uh, traditional... Uh, mental health therapy with culinary arts as a medium for healing. And so what I do is uh, the model that I use to try to assess my clients is um, twofold. Uh, I, when a client comes into my door and they're presenting with symptoms that make it really hard to function, I approach them uh, from a trauma-focused lens So I always think that if a person has a trauma history, it always really kind of supersedes some of the other presentation that they have going on. So um, I look at all of the areas of their life and how they're functioning, and I try to figure out what particular area they are having trouble with. So I ask them to sort of define themselves um, in the realm of their life and all of the different roles that they play and how they see themselves and how they see their own problems. And so I go through a history with them and I try to assess for a history of any type of trauma. And so I do it from that perspective. And uh, I also um, really talk to all of my clients um, in a very holistic way to try to really cast a wider net and not just focus on the mental health symptoms, but also focus on their eating habits. A lot of times clients present to therapy with, uh, you know, they could present with um, uh, inflammation in their body. A lot of my clients, there's always this mind and body connection where if there is like mental plaque in terms of their suffering, there's usual physical ailments, there's usual inflammation, there's usually inflammation, there's uh, complaints of like aches and pains. And when we take a really close look and we have a dialogue um, about their eating habits, uh, usually they're not eating foods that are healthy. Uh, They're not eating foods that are nutrient dense, but they're um, the way they're preparing their foods and what they're eating is actually mimicking a lot of like the mental health symptoms. So for example, like they might be eating foods that are actually making them feel really, really sluggish and tired, as opposed to eating foods that are making them feel energized and giving them vitality. 
so uh, so we talk about you know we talk about their diet and we talk about their lifestyle and we talk about what what aspects of their life could be impeding on their functioning so that's kind of how I approach therapy yeah that's yeah. really interesting and I guess what is your like official degree that you got uh, so I um, my first degree I got uh, in a I got a it's a licensed clinical social worker mm-hmm. and I got a master's degree in clinical social work. And then the other degree is in just classical culinary arts. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really interesting how you have combined the two and we're mm-hmm. in this like really crazy time right now where people are like home probably more than they've ever been yeah. their whole life. Yeah. unfortunately (laughs) unfortunately unfortunately but I mean like if you look at the news at all people are like going garden crazy right now and they're just like not only like buying all the seeds off the shelf but um I mean also just like crazy buying toilet paper and other stuff off the shelf so is there like some psychology thing that's happening where people are starting to hoard and starting to like think about like future food and like what is that all about yeah well I would say that it's it's very clear that people's behaviors are rooted in the fact that uh there's mass hysteria and there's a lot of anxiety and what people are afraid of is actually the they have a fear of the unknown uh, because what's scary is that uh, not only not only is it unknown whether or not your family member or a person in your community has coronavirus and is spreading it unbeknownst to them, but we also don't know what the economy is going to look like. We don't know if people are going to get their employment back. A lot of people are getting laid off. So, you know, on the one hand, it is an un, uh, it's an unrational. It's it's not a fear that's rational on the one hand. Uh, because on the one hand, you cannot predict what, what, what will happen. So in that sense, it's not rational. But on the other hand, it is rational because people are actually losing their jobs and people are losing their elderly parents to coronavirus and people are dying. So it's, uh, it's, it's a mix of feelings. It's a, and all the feelings are kind of in contradiction to one another. Mm-hmm. You know, are, do you think that there's going to be like, no more onions on the shelves. And so people are going to have to start producing their own or you think it's like kind of crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. I don't agree with the hoarding of everything. And mm-hmm. I think that the hoarding behavior stems from anxiety and it stems from a need to control. Yeah. And, uh, so whenever somebody is acting out with like, you know, control, it usually stems from a deep seated like vulnerabilities and insecurities that, you know, people that really want to be in control of, of what's happening in their lives, they're really vulnerable and they're really insecure. But getting back to your question about like hoarding seeds and growing gardens, like on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, I think that what is going on in society today uh, is really 
going to fuel people to think about their eating habits and to think about what it is that they're doing and how they're getting their food. So if, if, if this means that people are going to start like taking seeds and planting them and growing their own, guard, um, their own gardens, that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing if people start gardening, if they have the land and the means to do so, I think it's a wonderful thing. So I think that something really good can come out of this chaos, which you pointed out to, which is, you know, planting gardens, which is such a great thing. Yeah, so I mean, when you were doing your culinary school stuff, you were working at a farm to table restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> talk a little bit more about your experience with that. Yeah, that was a really neat experience. That was uh, one of the greatest experience experiences I would say I've ever had in my life. Like when I, it's very nostalgic for me when I talk about it, when I think about it, I just, I always have a smile on my face mm -hmm. because I, the reason why that was one of the most incredible experiences of my life when I would have discussions with a farmer and we would plant 1500 lettuce seeds and it was very detail oriented. And it would, it would take hours upon hours to plant these little tiny seeds in like these little beds and then watch it grow um, at all of the different stages. It was just so sweet to, to just see like what you've created with your own hands just by like taking a tiny, tiny little seed. But um, I love the fact that I was, I felt so connected to the earth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just, it was such a great feeling to just like get my hands in the soil and get dirty and just, I felt so connected to everything I was doing, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and then, and then seeing the fruits of your labors and then creating an artistic salad, you know, from something that you've grown is just such a wonderful feeling, you know? Yeah, yeah I would agree. So, I mean, they, how did they curate the recipes? seasonally like did you get to learn a lot about seasonal cooking and like how did they plan that out for the year yeah yeah so uh you, the menu was seasonally driven and you know whatever they harvested at any given month and uh you know certainly the you know the spring and the summertime it gives you so much more of an abundance of things that you can work with, which people, you know, especially springtime, you know, like, uh, for example, like one of the things that um, starts growing in springtime, which chefs get like really excited about are like ramps, mm -hmm. which you can do a lot of different things with, um, especially like pickled ramps. They add like a really great bite to things. Um, but you know, uh, you know, in the winter time and the fall, uh, when, you know, you can't be uh, doing as much outside, they would have um, a shed and, or they would have a greenhouse. So they, you know, they, they would then move everything indoors to the greenhouse. And so they would, they would be able to do things year round like that. Okay. So they also had a greenhouse. So that yeah. They yeah. Providing like lettuces and stuff year round. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess just with the mind body connection that you were mentioning like what is I mean like I've read different things online or like from news articles or whatever about how mental health is really improved by being outside and I was hoping you could talk more about that and gardening and how that can help with like improving mental health especially now when people are so have a lot of anxiety about the future. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's a really great question. And I think that, um, so being outside, one of the things that I do in my practice, uh, especially when it comes to doing trauma work, when it comes to you know helping people with their anxiety or their symptoms of uh, depression, or you know if they if people are coming up and presenting with a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms, one of the things that I like to teach them to do is something called isolating the senses. And basically what that means is whatever sense uh, that you're going to be using, whether or not it's listening to music or cooking something or going out there in nature, like you say, and garden, uh, you're going to really be hyper-focused on the sense that you're utilizing, right? So for example, if you're gardening, you're using touch and you're using you know, your sight. So when you're gardening, you want to really focus on what that soil feels like in your hands. And you want to kind of be one with the soil, you know, you want to feel it, you know, what is the texture of it? What does it smell like? And be really fully immersed with everything that you're doing in that regard. And so the thing is, is that you can't be at two places at one time when it comes to anxiety. You're either really focused on what is causing your anxiety or you're isolating your senses and you are driving all of that energy into that sense that you're utilizing. So your nervous system can't be working on overdrive. That's why being outside and gardening and uh, being very grounded into the earth and very rooted has incredible benefits for overcoming anxiety and depression. Yeah. So, I mean, really, like, <laughs> would you, like, really suggest right now people, like, spend mm -hmm. as much time outside as possible? I don't know. <laughs> Just... Uh, you know, trying to ground themselves and uh, maybe overcome the fear that people are feeling right now. Yeah, I, if, if you can, any chance somebody has to go outside, I would say do it. Uh, it's a little tricky because people have to do their social distancing. So right now, you know, maybe people are a little bit more wary of it. Mm -hmm. But I, I do recommend people get outside any chance they get. And, you know, that vitamin D <laughs> that you're getting from the sunshine is really good for your health anyway. So the more people are outside, the better. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any plans for what you guys are planning to plant outside this year or don't have any solid plans yet? Uh, we'll be doing a lot of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of tomatoes because that's a big thing to eat in the house here. And uh, we're... Uh, we planted we planted asparagus, so that's coming up. We have horseradish and a bunch of uh, herbs, mm -hmm. and yeah, and so so far that's it. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> radish for Passover. <laughs> uh, yeah, Passover. Yep, I'm pretty much prepped for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went shopping. I got my things for that, so I uh, I'm excited about that. And I know that we're going to be doing a little Passover teleconference. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. <laughs> I'm excited about that. I think I think it will be really fun to have like an online little, you know, Passover Seder with the family because we wish we could be together, but unfortunately during these times, you know, we can't be. So yeah. yeah. Well, this month I was able to, I guess, collaborate with you and make the seasonal recipe which was really fun 
Um, so I have some peas growing in my garden and I have a bunch of mint. And so you were able to come up with a pea soup recipe, which I made this morning over here in Oregon. And it was really good. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I use bone broth, which is fantastic because, you know, with the bone broth, it, it extracts collagen, you know, mm -hmm. any type of bone broth. And so that's such a healthy thing to be using in addition to just how healthy the soup is as it is from just using the peas. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's neat that you use bone broth. I feel like that's very unique. Yeah, yeah. So your original recipe used a veggie broth, which I'm sure was fabulous. Yeah. Um, I had made a bone broth early, earlier in the week, um, which is super easy to do. I do it in the crock pot. Okay. So my, and what animal do you like to use the bones from? Um, just beef bones. Oh, beef bones. Okay. All right. How long do you do it in the crock pot for? Um, 24 hours. Wow. So, yeah, it's wow. really easy. Uh, I just go over, well, when I was able to, I would just go over to the supermarket and the one up the street, they sell the bones bagged up from the butcher. Mm -hmm. And it's oh, wow. really very cheap. You know, it's a good way to um, get a lot of iron and calcium and collagen. Yeah, yeah. And I think like sometimes bone broth can have like a strange flavor i don't know if you ever have felt that it has like sometimes like a strange flavor i don't know so normally i won't just drink bone broth straight and i'll like mix it in so like this time i used it with the pea soup recipe but sometimes i'll do like a mushroom potato soup and then it kind of like hides that bone brothy flavor yeah. that can yeah. be kind of off-putting a little bit yeah especially because you're cooking it for such a long period of time you're extracting the most nutrients and the most flavor if you're cooking it for that long mm -hmm. which i think uh yeah i think any any chef uh, would be very impressed <laughs> you're making bone broth for that long you're very dedicated to making bone broth if you're making it for 24 hours <laughs> Hey, just take it in the crock pot and let it go. Although, I mean, I feel like home chefs are like on point these days. Is there it's definitely a... getting? Uh, it's definitely uh, getting a lot more easier because you're able to take these online courses, uh, you know, with the, the most world-renowned chefs. So it's really incredible because it's like they're bringing the class to right in your own kitchen, mm -hmm. which I think is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot more access. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Where like I remember my mom, like she would have to go and like take a cooking class or like read about a new recipe in like a magazine that would be sent once a month or you know, but now you can access so much information basically for free online and become a really good home cook. And, and, and the pea soup is also a special soup because it was, <laughs> it was Bobby's favorite soup. Yeah, it was my mom's favorite. Split pea soup, it was her favorite. So that was really special to make a springtime pea soup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, thanks for coming up with the recipe. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed making it and it's uh, very tasty. I, I tell you, I, I was so delighted 
once it was done, I, I had two bowls of it. <laughs> it was that good. It was really that good. It was delicious. Did Jake like it? Did he have a taste? No, unfortunately, he did not. <laughs> oh, no. Unfortunately, he, you know, I gave him one teaspoon fill. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, is that it was, he found it very off-putting. And I think the reason why he found it off-putting is because I pureed it only until I pulverized all of the peas, but I specifically pulverized it um, until the peas were, were done, but not the herbs because I wanted the herbs to be kind of floating around because I wanted it to be very rustic looking. Mm -hmm. And I like the mouthfeel of actually biting down on the herbs. Like some people prefer a much more smoothie, smoother consistency. And I think that's actually why Jacob did not like the soup because the herbs are really front and center, you know, and yeah. like, you know, so it was, I think he, he found that off-putting. Yeah. So Jacob is my nephew, your son. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, at the beginning, you were talking more about, like, how what you eat really affects your mental health. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, is there a physiological connection that, like, people have made or having to do with, like, gut health and the brain or, like, can you speak more to Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So, I get really excited talking about this because this is something that I am so passionate discussing with my clients. And I know that it's like having this discussion can really open up a pathway to, for them to turn their life around and for them to feel better in their bodies. And so when I talk to either my friends or my family or my clients about certain foods uh, that they want to gravitate towards, um, there's a small handful of things that I recommend to my clients. And what I would recommend to them uh, to bulk up on our, for example, of cruciferous veggies, right? So anything like Brussels sprouts, like cauliflower, like broccoli, these foods are renowned to decrease inflammation in the body. They're renowned for that. Not only that, but eating them in very high amounts actually reduces a certain um, risk of certain types of cancers in the body, certain types, not all cancers, but certain types of cancers it will reduce. And it's also, um, cruciferous veggies are also high in vitamin C and K mm -hmm. and fiber. Um, so um, in addition to that, uh, eating foods that have a red color pigment. Um, so the red color pigment, the anthocyanins, like something like red cabbage, that significantly reduces, studies have found that it reduces your risk of heart disease and could lower blood pressure. Mm. Um, so so cruciferous veggies are one group. Um, the other thing that I recommend that people start drinking, um, kind of like a supplement on a daily basis, if they can, if they, if they can appreciate the taste and you know, maybe add some honey or things to sweeten it, if they don't like the natural taste, is uh, I would definitely, for sure, matcha. So matcha is like a high, very high-end, high-quality green tea. And it's packed with antioxidants. It boosts metabolism. So funny that you're talking yeah. about matcha because maybe yeah. within the past like month or two, I've started to replace coffee in the morning some morning yeah. with matcha. And how have you found it? How how has it been going for you? Oh, I love it. It's um, yeah. I'll do matcha with almond milk. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And so um. So the other thing like to stimulate energy that I recommend are MCT oils, which are found in coconut oil and coconut milk. 
so uh, these things, if you have them in your cooking, if you put them in your cooking, if you put them in your coffee, it stimulates energy. And it's very, it's a, a very good type of fat, the mm -hmm. coconut oil. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I recommend, and probably one of the most important things, um, is eating a diet that is very high in fish. Because fish is a, first of all, it's a very good source of protein. And of all the proteins, um, it happens to be the protein that has the least amount of saturated fat. And not only that, but it, it's filled, fish are filled with omega-3 and omega-6s, which are renowned uh, to improve cardiovascular health uh, and um, brain health. Right. Um, so, and also one of the things that fish have that other proteins don't necessarily have is that fish are very high in uh, vitamin B12 mm -hmm. and the B12 is actually responsible for maintaining a really good nervous system. So people who are um, prone to anxiety, prone to depression, uh, they really want to be mindful of how much B12 they're, they're having in their body. And if you can get that from something as natural as eating a diet high in fish, mm -hmm. then that's, that's very, very good. The oily, the oilier the fish, um, the, high, the higher the oil content. That's why. So, like, what kind of fish do you recommend that are sort of like sustainably produced and the most healthy? So I would say, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's very, very hit or miss with this fish because, uh, you know, uh, I, I think we live in a country in which, uh, you know, fish is really, uh, fish is not really a protein that majority of people kind of gravitate towards. I think it's very culturally driven, like who kind of likes fish and who doesn't. Um, you know, of course, you know, people could be swayed, you know, depending on how they prepare the fish. But in answer to your question, uh, the fish with the highest amount of oil is uh and which is a very sustainable uh fish is a mackerel okay so either boston mackerel or spanish mackerel there's two varieties it's a very very fishy oily taste but if you the, depending on how you prepare it like if you grill it it actually tames down um the fishiness and it increases the smokiness and okay. some people might really like that because mm -hmm. it makes the fish taste smoky and it tastes good so yeah. What about like canned fish, sardines, tuna fish? What's your opinion about that? Because maybe it's like more accessible. So that is absolutely fine. Uh, a lot of people actually have a misconception that if your food is uh, tinned or it's canned, it's not good quality. But in a country like Spain, for example, one of the things that Spain is renowned for is, is actually canning a lot of their product. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, that if something is canned or it's tinned, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the quality is diminished. It really depends on what it is that you're eating. You want to eat something with like high amounts of like omega threes and omega sixes. So, um, so sardines would be phenomenal, you know, canned sardines are ex excellent source of protein and all of that, all of those nutrients. And what about, I guess, farmed fish? Is that, do you tend to stay away? Do you think it's okay? Do you think the type of fish or the way that it's farmed, like there's like sustainable farming, like what do you tend to gravitate towards? 
I tend not to get fish that is farm raised. Uh, and the reason why is because they are raised in extremely unnatural close quarters to one another. Mm-hmm. So they're swimming, you know, round and round. And majority of the time, these fish are given uh, uh, antibiotics, right? They're being treated with antibiotics. So you're not really getting just the fish. You're getting the fish plus the antibiotics plus whatever feed that they might be giving the fish um, that is really unnatural to them, right, as part of their diet. So I would stay away from farmed fish uh, and I would, and, and there's, I, once again, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with farmed fish, but I would eat it in moderation. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't eat it on a regular basis. Just in moderation would be fine. And I don't think anything bad or terrible could happen uh, from eating like farmed fish um, mm-hmm. once, once in a while, you know. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Everything in moderation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, do you have like a preferred way of cooking it or it depends on the fish or like what is your uh, well I usually I, I I usually bake it you know I, I find baking to be the easiest uh you know just setting the oven popping it in there and then you know 20 minutes later you've got your dinner ready or your lunch so I just find baking to be super easy mm-hmm. you know um and yeah I mean there's there's so many different uh, techniques that you could do in cooking fish um, that will definitely of course change the flavor. So if you want to experiment, especially now with uh, with the unfortunate covid nineteen, I think people are experiment uh, experimenting a lot more in their kitchen. Uh, and so they might want to try different techniques with cooking their fish and see you know how that changes up the flavor. so mm-hmm. but certainly baking is the easiest. Okay, yeah any um, like specific recipe that you're experimenting with right now? Uh, so the latest one that I made, it's, uh, it was probably the easiest <laughs> preparation for fish that I've ever made. And it wasn't, it was actually, uh, I made it for breakfast yesterday and it was really delicious. Uh, I took cod liver mm-hmm. and I mashed it up and I put it on a piece of uh, thin cracker and I chopped up some cashew nuts and just for like a crunch out element and extra nutrition, I just topped it with uh, cashew nuts and cod liver is, it's very, very healthy cod liver. And uh, the liver of the codfish? Or? Uh, so the cod liver oil, which is derived from the cod liver, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very, very good for uh, reducing inflammation in the body. Okay. And, you know, for centuries, for centuries of countries like Scotland, Norway, and Iceland have actually been eating lots of cod liver and taking a lot of cod liver oil as a way to boost their immune system. So today you'll find it in capsules in any pharmacy, and it's wonderful for the immune system. Hmm. I did not realize that you could just buy cod liver, but maybe I'll have to try it. And it's really good. It's um, it's it's, and you know what? What is really delicious about cod liver? You so cod liver comes in like a tin. Usually they sell it in a tin, little six ounce tin. Mm-hmm. And what's really great about the cod liver is that it's usually you know brined and it's smoked, and they add f- some flavoring to it, like herbs, yeah. like peppercorns and bay leaves. But what's really what I really love about cod liver is I love the texture of it because it's very smooth and velvety and it tastes like a like a pate. Hmm. 
it's a wonderful thing that you can use to spread on bread and crackers. It's a really, and if you're, if anyone out there is wondering what it tastes like, it actually tastes like sardines. Okay. Very nice. I like sardines a lot, actually. Yeah. So maybe I'll have to try it out. Did you grow up eating specific types of foods that you've carried over into your adulthood? Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, I just, for sure, I would say mackerel. Like, the, I, I, I think I have an appreciation for maybe some of those oily fishes because I grew up eating them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, like mackerel is something that we always had. We always had salmon. You know, we always had lox. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my, you know, I, and I also, you know, I also grew up in an area where there was a huge fishing culture. And I think that had a lot to do with it because back in the day when I was growing up in the 80s and like the 90s, you know, the fishermen would just like, they, they, they'd have their catch, they'd pull their boats right up to the docks and you would literally buy your fish straight from the boats. Mm-hmm. So you didn't, we wouldn't even go into the fish market. And that, that's also a really nostalgic memory because I remember going, you know, I remember taking a walk with my mom and dad and I remember like talking to the fishermen directly and we would like look at the whole spread of fish that they just caught and we'd point to the one we wanted and you know that's how we would buy it so mm-hmm. you know it was, it was really fun because you know you you got to talk to the fishermen about like the catch and you know where they caught it from and it was just it made for a really interesting dialogue i mean i think that's why like the whole yeah. farm to table movement and why farmers markets have really exploded in the past five to ten years is because people are just interested in where their food comes from and they're interested in having fresher food more nutrient dense food and I think that's like come to the forefront for a lot of people even if you're you know living in New York City like you were doing for so long um, to like more rural areas like where I'm living right now you know people are still interested in knowing how their food is produced and I think that's really cool and I think that I don't know. I'm hoping that like through all of this, even if there's like a silver lining or something, people are just going to become even more interested in not just going to the farmer's market, but like actually trying it out for themselves and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like trying to grow their tomato plant, trying to, you know, grow some herbs and just have that, you know, that connection and, you know, have not just like the mental benefit of like, getting your hands dirty, but also like seeing the benefit of the flavors tasting better and the nutrients being there, whereas like it's not sitting on a shelf for weeks and weeks depleting in nutrients. I think that like people are going to start turning back to it. Yeah, well, thank you for this opportunity. This was a wonderful opportunity to be able to do this with you and I really enjoyed myself very much.
For this one's seasonal recipe, Rebecca curated a minty pea soup. You can find her recipes and information at culinarytherapist.org blog. Peas can be planted from mid-February through March in the Pacific Northwest, or as soon as the soil can be worked. Upstate New York is still seeing some frosty nights, so it's not too late in some parts of the country to get started. Herbs, leafy greens, radishes, and potatoes also thrive in cool temperatures. In the Pacific Northwest, May is the time you can start putting out crops that need warmer nights. This includes tomatoes, eggplant, peppers, corn, and squash. For the pea soup, you will need broth, any kind works, vegetable or meat-based, shelled peas, fresh mint, oregano or parsley, onion, bay leaves, olive oil, garlic, salt and pepper, as well as optional garnish of feta cheese, green onion, or chives. You can pulse the soup in a blender or use an immersion blender to achieve your preferred texture. You can find the recipe on the Garden to Plate blog or on Rebecca's blog. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll see you guys next month.